the iconoclast Intimidator, the stalwart spy, the killer Welsh, Timothy Dalton. He hearkened back to literary inspiration for a bond that would scare the living daylights out of his foes and stir the hearts of his fans. In the pantheon of Bond, Dalton's stay may have been short, but he surely earned his license to thrill. I'm American film journalist Rupert Carmichael. Join me and our most beloved Bond, George Lazenby, for a tantalizing introspection about where Bond began and where he's going next. In conjunction with the PBS and the BBC, this is Building a Better Bond. Welcome again, listeners. Thank you for joining myself, Rupert Carmichael, and my co-host, George Lazenby, on another episode of Building a Better Bond. This week, we talk about something of a lost period in the annals of Bond history, one of the most mysterious and oft-misremembered eras of the franchise. We speak, of course, of Timothy Dalton living up to his name as the international man of mystery. Confusion shrouded his performances as well as his own personal life. An enigmatic character who still, to this day, needs a little figuring out. No one better for the cause than his once mentor, and now my friend and co-host, George. What does it feel like to talk about Timothy Dalton? Rupert, it's a hard subject, but I'm just glad that we were able to get through the Roger Moore episode. If you remember before we recorded last time, I made you agree to do a murder-suicide pact if we thought it was too unbearable to talk about Roger Moore for a full 45 minutes. Yeah, that's correct. I did not sign, uh, and I urged you not to either, but you did have it drafted up. Interesting choice to use pig's blood instead of ink. George. I just thought that I needed to sacrifice something just to give back after talking about Roger Moore for that long. You can't sustain life talking about a terrible point in the Bond franchise without, unfortunately, having to sacrifice a living being. This episode, as I said, is, is hard for me in a different way, though. Yes. Now, listeners, if you're a fan of the franchise, you'll know that after the cockeyed, wry-smiled, ham-fisted, fun-loving approach of Sir Roger Moore... The series had a bit of a overcorrection. Roger Moore was, he was pretty much the Voldemort of the James Bond franchise. You know, we, we shouldn't really even be talking about him. In, in the same analogy, I would obviously be Harry Potter. I'd probably be even J.K. Rowling. Rupert, you would be, I guess, Mr. Belding or Lisa Turtle. I actually haven't read the books. It sounds about right to me, though. Shelving that analogy for a moment, let's return to a return to a literary interpretation of Ian Fleming's famous series of novels. Timothy Dalton had a serious approach to the character that bordered on the severe. Would you agree with that, George? I think that's an understatement. When people think of the James Bond books in Fleming's masterpieces, they don't think about Roger Moore gallivanting around in a clown suit, I'll tell you that much, and Timothy Dalton agreed. Uh, and so he brought to the part something that people in the 80s just weren't ready for. He was ahead of his time. And this was the first opportunity for me, Rupert, to really employ my creative direction on the film set. Roger Moore, of course, was a lost cause. I stormed off the set within minutes of filming the first day. 
But Timothy Dalton was someone new, someone I could mold and someone I could help with the four T's method that we've been talking about every episode of this show. Uh, unfortunately, he's sort of uh, an Anakin Skywalker scenario. Perhaps even we have a Zordon Rita Repulsa type relationship. As we traipse across the panopticon of references today, I think it's important to remember that Timothy Dalton was once asked before to play the role of James Bond, and he refused. He refused to follow up one Sean Connery feeling and fearing that he couldn't do the series justice. Now, of course, after he witnessed our own George Lazenby teach a masterclass in one sterling film on how to truly portray the character, Dalton's fears were assuaged. He did not need to strive for perfection because perfection was already reached. That, that's a great way to put it, Rupert. You know, he, he saw Sean Connery do a masterful performance and thought, clearly, I can't follow that up. He wasn't very experienced as an actor at the time. But then he saw me follow it up tenfold, elevenfold, twelvefold, thirteenfold, and thought, okay, well, the bar's been set. People are going to remember George Lazenby forever. And if I can just do justice and get advice from him, I'll be happy. Unfortunately, scheduling didn't work out, and then he saw Roger Moore's, if you can call it a performance, you know, that would be a generous term. But then after that, he was all the more obligated to almost resurrect the James Bond franchise with my help. Absolutely. A mentee and a messiah to the role, Dalton felt some sort of spiritual reckoning, as if he were called from the film heavens to save a dying franchise. We'll explore the intimate relationship between you and he throughout this episode. But first, let us break ground on these four T's, this famous rubric that I must say is taking over the Twitter sphere. Copyright George Lazenby. The fact that you have to type that out every time you tweet about it really cuts down on the amount of words you can say. But Rupert, it's not about the words, you know. It's about the concept. It's in your mind. You shouldn't have to write it out, is what we're saying. So true. And one of those concepts is the concept of words. The words spoken by the James Bond character, Dalton, being unique in so many ways in his portrayal, was also unique in that he was the first non-English-speaking actor, the first and still only, to tackle the character James Bond. He, of course, Welsh. That's true. English not being his first language, he was obviously a little uh, reluctant to be a character known for his witty quips. He didn't think at first that he could bring the gravitas that I did to his various sayings and slogans. And so I really had to coach him. But who better to coach than the man who also conquered his own accent? This allowed you to have an interesting sort of King's Speech-esque influence on Dalton's early days in Bond training. That's very true, Rupert. He was very nervous on screen, which... For a, a beginner actor, that, that's nothing new. You know, I was nervous and I had to conquer that fear. And on top of it, I was doing a different accent than my own normal speaking voice. And so was Timothy. And I just told him to, to be himself. You know, I told him to be calm. And what happened was sort of a mixture of where he wanted to take the part. And I don't know, deep Freudian psychosis manifesting because whenever he would try to say a line, something completely terrifying would come out of his mouth. It would make the director and everyone else on set stop 
and fear for their lives. Too true. Carrying on our tradition of reading to you, the listener, some excerpts from the time of filming, let's go all the way back to 1986, while Dalton was training for his first movie, The Living Daylights. I think some, some memory that is burned in my brain, Rupert, from this was seeing Timothy Dalton and the Bond girl, Carrie Lowell, in a scene together. Timothy Dalton walks in the room and he pauses for a second and, and the director and I are looking at the camera, the monitor, we're thinking, why isn't he saying anything? And then he says to Kerry, why is it that when you kill two men at the same time in two different time zones, they decompose at the same rate? And that's when I knew he, he was too far gone. And this was three minutes into filming. And the director said, okay, Timothy, that's it's fine. But the line was, hello. The character had already taken him over, is what I'm saying, Rupert. Absolutely. It was the first, but it certainly would not be the last time that Dalton's improvisations struck fear and disquiet into the hearts of those on set. Who can forget when Dalton was supposed to deliver the dry, wiry quip, how about a refill, after emptying his clip into a squadron of enemy minions? But instead he said, and I read, "'Return thee to your maker,' I hope he does not weep at your deaths. I think that just illustrates that he was terrifying when he talked. Absolutely terrifying. I would go into his trailer sometimes, Rupert, just to try and run lines with him. The director asked me to to help him out a bit. And one day I walked in and he was just sitting there sharpening what appeared to be a human femur. And Rupert, if I walked in on you and you were sharpening a human femur into some sort of sword or dagger and you were a sane person, you'd probably... Just do something at least to cover that up. Say, oh, oh, whoops, I didn't see you. Come on in there. Whoops. Uh, no, this is nothing. He didn't do anything. He just stared at me right in the face. And that's when I knew that any influence I had on this man would not work. There was a darkness spreading in Dalton's mind. A fear from early on that the character would take him over. And it surely began to as he filmed The Living Daylights. He could often be seen in his trailer into the deep hours of the night, simply staring into his mirror. Many makeup assistants quit their jobs, not for the classic Hollywood reasons of sexual harassment or poor wages, but because Dalton would stare at them and say things like, and I quote, Can you fathom that inside of each of us is a skeleton, a pile of bones, grimacing from one to another. It got to the point, I think I want to say, you know, halfway through the shooting of License to Kill, where he would be on on camera, just in the background, standing, lurking. And the director would say, "Uh, Timothy, you're the only person in the scene. We need you in the foreground. And he wouldn't respond. He would just be standing back there in a shadow. And it was at this point where, you know, we were just in panic mode. We had to get this film done. And I had to use my acting prowess to simply overdub his lines because he would not talk and we had to employ sort of a Lion King on Broadway-esque stagehand maneuver where different stagehands would manipulate his body parts so he was moving around and then I filled in the vocals. I'm actually an excellent mimic, Rupert. I don't know if we've talked about that. You were kind enough to display your prowess in the magpie-esque mimicry of accents, but can you also copy a man's mannerisms, George? I'm an excellent mimic of vocals and mannerisms. Unfortunately, this is an audio medium, so the listeners can't see this, but I'm sitting identically how you are sitting right now, Rupert. And here, let me let me show you something else. I'll do your voice right now. Hello, listeners. I'm Rupert Carmichael. 
Did you hear that? Now, listeners, you might be really taken for a white water rafting ride here because it was not just I a moment ago that spoke. That was my co-host, and he again illustrates just how flawlessly he can execute physical and audio trickery. Now, am I reading correctly that because Dalton refused to speak and soon refused to even move, stagehands had to spray his face with a series of narrow hoses, and his reactionary grimaces and contortions were later overdubbed with your voice. That's very true, Rupert. In the end, what they would do would be add in all the sound in post because they would take a leaf blower and blow it into Timothy's mouth so it seemed like his lips were moving around and his cheeks were moving around forming words. And then they take the best clips of that and I would overdub them. It has to be said that given the limitations and and the obstacles that were constructed in Dalton's mind, that the talented producers and technical directors on the set, and of course, you, George Lazenby, combine their efforts to create two very well-crafted, if not terribly memorable, Bond films. I think the technical triumphs of the team translated into technology that made its way onto the screen. Let's talk now about the tech of Dalton's two films. Unconventional, but at the same time grounded in the reality of the novels. An interesting technical experience. George, what sort of gizmos, gadgets, and otherwise were employed over these two movies? Well, there are a couple gizmos and gadgets of Nard Rupert's. One, just as a fun fact, if we want to start this out, was uh, in The Living Daylight's Q in MI6, he's testing a sofa that swallows you. And this ended up being the inspiration for Jambi on Pee Wee Herman. You're seeing here again, listeners, how the James Bond franchise inspires so many facets of popular culture. It's not a self-contained series, not at all. So it influenced pop culture, but it also was sort of a, a filter for pop culture as well. Timothy Dalton was very into photography, and photography was becoming more of a commonplace activity in the late 80s, and people thought that the camera had limitless potential. And so Timothy insisted that any tech in the films were camera-based. So there was a camera sniper, a camera x-ray, everything camera-based. He thought that this would really keep everything timeless. In Timothy's Southampton estate, years after he abandoned the property, urban archaeologists stumbled through the front gates to see that every square inch of wall in the compound was covered, floor to ceiling, in candid portraits of individuals, some famous actors, most common folk. Most of them were me. Several rooms, this a bit more understandably, plastered with a hundred visages of Lazenby. Dalton, when questioned, would later say it was his belief that every time someone was photographed, a piece of their soul was captured. This led to him being a very industrious and prolific amateur photographer, in so much as he would suggest, whenever possible, integrating photo technology into the gadgets. As you said, George, we had the photo sniper, we had the photo x-ray. What were some pitches from Timothy that didn't make the cut? Uh, well, camera pants were one of them. Mm. Uh, camera gloves. He had camera glasses, which you'd think that, oh, maybe they're sort of like a Google Glass of today, and they thought of that all the way back in 1980, but they were actually just two Kodak disposable cameras to his face. The most curious one to me, George, called the Hamra, he proposed a baked ham that was also a camera, the shutter being that 
central bone. Yes, this was in a scene in The Living Daylights where he was preparing dinner for Carrie Lowell's character, the Bond girl. He still wasn't sure if she was uh, on his side or not. So he said, I'll bake you dinner. And he prepares uh, camera ham, hamra. Rupert, I, I think this illustrates that Timothy could get very in the weeds with things. He would really fixate on one thing in particular. For instance, in this case, the cameras. He wanted all the technology to be cameras. And then as he started studying ancient cultures more and becoming more ingrained with James Bond and the belief that the camera steals part of your soul, he thought, well, if one picture snap steals a little part of my soul, then what is a film camera doing? It must be exponential, my soul being ripped out of my body. And so at that point, he said, no more technology. We have to be true to the character. James Bond would only use his bare hands. And that's when things got even more scary. Absolutely. Dalton, famous even in his youth for his mastery of the martial arts, he had a preoccupation with turning one's body into a weapon, often saying, I am cursed with this soft flesh that surrounds me. Tear it from me, tear it from me, please. A lot of takes were scrapped because an actor would be talking, saying their lines, and then all of a sudden notice that Timothy's hands would be encroaching around their necks. And the director would, would have to yell, cut, and say, Timothy, what are you doing? And it, it was like he was possessed of something. He didn't even know that he was about to choke somebody. Paranoia, self-defense, obsession. These are the words that describe Dalton's performance, especially as we trail into the later part of 1989, wrapping production on mm -hmm. License to Kill. This is where the break between Dalton and Bond truly cements Dalton believes in September of this year that he does himself have a license to kill. Tell me about that, George. Everybody on set would come to work each morning in fear for their lives. And they were looking to me. They would say, George, you're responsible for Timothy. You have to do something. And I just kept saying, guys, you know, just let him do what he needs. But I was almost tricking myself into believing that he had not gone full method. And we thought that he was so deadly with his bare hands that... Eventually, we just said, Timothy, technology is a staple of the James Bond franchise. We're putting our foot down. We have to use some piece of technology because we thought that these faux props would actually be safer for people to be around than him karate chopping and, you know, doing whatever he was doing. And so every single piece of technology you see in the last scenes that were shot of License to Kill had to be literally duct taped to his hands. He would be kicking and screaming. And we'd say, we have to put this piece of technology in for the story. We duct tape it to his hands. And so that's why there's some incongruity in those scenes of License to Kill. It's also why in the love scene where he caresses the hair behind the ears of his romantic interest, he does have a full electronic briefcase fastened to his arm. Yes, there was some efficiencies made when we would finally get all the duct tape to his hands so he could carry the gadget. We didn't want to unduct tape his hands because he would be freaking out. So we would just say, okay, well, it's in his hands. We'll sort of work it into the script and whatever scene we have to shoot next, he'll just have to have it in his hands as well. So there's multiple scenes of him drinking martinis. There's maybe two briefcases and he's trying to pick up the martini glass like that and dump the liquid in his mouth. Dalton's body control allowed him to, even given these otherwise cumbersome restraints perform his duties admirably it's one of those easter eggs that a shrewd viewer will pick up on but the average viewer probably misses out on but that is one of the things we seek to do here at building a better bond pull back the curtain just a little bit 
You mentioned... Rupert, please, don't say pull back the curtain. I have sort of PTSD from Timothy Dalton popping out of curtains at different points throughout the film. You're right. How short-sighted of me, George. But with a slightly longer gaze, we look to the next segment where we talk about the peculiar habits of making a drink for the most frightening man in Hollywood. Don't go anywhere. There's more building a better bond right after these messages. Hello, listeners. Rupert Carmichael here again on behalf of the PBS and the BBC, and today, the ABC. That's Australian Public Radio. Butter, jam, marmalade. These breakfastian bedeckings predate a great many forms of civilization. But where do they stand? In the pantheon of widespread spreads. Covering the spread is a one-part micro-series about the history of what constitutes a constitutional, be it a muffin modification or a toast to toast. Plus, if you listen to our Live from the Maldives pre-pre-recording of the event, you'll also hear the ABC's addendum chapter, Vegemite, the yeast feast that almost Vegja wasn't. Join us exactly 30 minutes from right now for the exclusive exception to the rule of laying it on thick. Shaken, not stirred. Bond. James Bond. The iconic character is revered for his catchphrases. Unfortunately, having only been in one film, I didn't have as much opportunity as other Bonds to leave my lexiconical mark on the franchise. Until now. My new handbook, George Sloganby, is chock full of some of the best catchphrases never said by my take on 007. I've come up with witty quips and snappy retorts for nearly every situation I would have been in if I'd made seven Bond films. Order today and get the Tongue Twister expansion pack for the truly adventurous wordsmith. George Sloganby is available at gbc.com, the closest URL I could find to bbc.com. Pick up a copy and get gabbing. And now, back to Bond. Welcome back, listeners. We have spoken at length now about the tragic Shakespearean tale of Timothy Dalton and how he handled and eventually was handled by the character James Bond. We would be remiss, however, not to take a look at one of the most innocent but one of the most telling pieces of this enigmatic puzzle, the martini. George, Timothy Dalton... And his relationship with alcohol was a complicated one, was it not? Well, it was complicated in that he didn't drink it. Of course, to be James Bond, you have to have an interesting relationship with alcohol. It sort of fuels you. But Timothy believed that to be a better actor and to do the character his due diligence, that he needed to be straight-laced and he needed to have his mind working. And unfortunately for the rest of the cast and everybody involved, this was the last thing that they wanted. If they could have drugged and sedated Dalton, they would have... The man, however, was unsedatable because he prepared only his own beverages at all times, fearing, of course, betrayal at every turn. Dalton, however, was accustomed to lacing his own drinks. He would often shake his own martinis and add a small amount of strychnine to one of the two glasses of water. He would then switch them rapidly on the countertop and say a simple but grim bottoms up to the nearest stagehand to him. After drinking it, and inevitably not being poisoned, he would simply gaze into the glass and ask why. George, how was this practice of abandoning all self-reliance meshing with your teaching techniques? That's a great question, Rupert. At this point, I didn't know what to do, really. You know, what happens when the master needs help? Where do they turn? Mm. I asked Sean Connery for help. 
there's no fucking way I would ask Roger Moore for help. But I started studying old films and trying to figure out, you know, thinking back, how did we get around shooting these scenes? Sean Connery was obviously a raging alcoholic and he was drunk the entire time. I tried to one-up him and so I was drunk even more so. But there was no way around Timothy being just a straight arrow into insanity, really. And you mentioned the strychnine, that it wasn't even the worst thing he laced his own drinks with. He believed that because he was James Bond, because he was referring to himself as James Bond at this point in time, which was five days into filming, that James Bond should only drink the harshest chemicals known to man. And I said, well, you know, he could drink alcohol. Just trying to maybe think of ways that he would drink something that would sedate him a little bit. But he said, no, give me a glass full of, gl- of bleach. Give me a glass full of nitroglycerin. At one point in License to Kill Rupert, he drank a shot glass full of thumbtacks. And throughout it all, nary a hint of discomfort, only the steely cold gaze of Dalton's Bond, a gaze that would live on in infamy. They say if looks could kill, Dalton would be the most reviled mass murderer of modern times. Gazing across the placid surface, whether it was arsenic, cyanide, or simple ethanol, Dalton's eyes held the secrets of a thousand death wishes. Now, whenever you looked at him on screen, it was like you were witnessing someone having a Vietnam flashback or something, because he was just so far into being James Bond, and probably because he had drank so much bleach at this point. Timothy Dalton wasn't there anymore. It took him several years after the rap of License to Kill to even consider himself Timothy Dalton again. I think we can sum up the effects of these psychotic crossings over through the advice in a written letter that Sean Connery gave to you. It was short, and it was to the point. It said... Are you going through my mail now, Rupert? You provided this when asked, George, at the beginning of the episode. This is a photocopy of a letter you received decades ago. Mm, Okay. I don't know if I believe you. We'll, We'll have a discussion after the show, but let me just skim this over before you read it. Make some edits here. Okay. All right. I'm fine with it now. I just crossed off my address. It wasn't the address. That was simply the job number from the printer down the hall. That said, the note was grim and concise, as is Connery's way. It said... When you've got a mad dog, the only option is to put it down. And so I took that to heart during scenes. If I noticed that actors were getting a little nervous, I would be hiding, you know, behind the bar or behind a door. And I would jump onto Timothy with a rag full of chloroform and knock him out. And then while he was unconscious, we'd use those stagehands again, dressed in black, that later on the Lion King on Broadway would use. They they stole that idea from me. Uh, And they would just sort of puppeteer Timothy's body to get him through the rest of the scene. So true was this, that I think we ought to speak of the final culminating battle scene in A License to Kill, where it is actually you playing the stunt man of the main villain who dips a rag into a chloroform martini and wrestles with Dalton for over a half an hour before finally subduing him. This was an incredibly difficult scene to shoot because I was a stuntman for the villain. And so I would have to do all the stunts against an unconscious Timothy, run across the set, pick him up, and use his arms to sort of slap me in the face a couple times and then run back, do whatever I was supposed to do, jump over a wall or or a fence or something, go pick up Timothy, hoist him over the fence like he was chasing me. 
and sort of writhe around if he was on top of me. But I think the end results was was stunning and magnificent. The film won Best Practical Effects at the Academy Awards that year, and I think we can all say it's a feat that hasn't been rivaled since. Moving on, from one feet to five feet 11 inches, the measurement for Dalton's famous James Bond tuxedo. When we talk about the man behind the man that was Timothy Dalton, we also must talk about the man behind the suit. So I think that this tuxedo in particular, Rupert, had its challenges from the beginning because if you recall the late 80s and early 90s weren't the modicum of well-fitting clothes. They were baggy. They were just slightly off. And James Bond had to be dapper and he had to be good looking. And so the the suit was already a problem from the beginning. Of course, Dalton had a Patrick Batemanian natural physical handsomeness, but we were at odds as a people with good fashion, given the zeitgeist of the time. It was almost as if all of Western culture sought unanimously to look as bad as possible. And this kind of led to the first scene in Living Daylights. It's a very memorable scene where Timothy Dalton stealthily swims past guards and hoists himself on a dock in the nighttime in a full sort of a black wetsuit. And then he unzips that and it's his tuxedo. In Timothy's opinion, the tuxedo was too baggy, too billowy. He thought that he couldn't be as stealthy in such a flowy garment. And so he said, why can't James Bond always wear this this frogman suit? I want to be stealthy. I want to be mysterious. I want to be lurking past people as James Bond. You know, I indulged him at first, and that was probably a bad idea. Because the next scene, he was supposed to be uh, at a wedding. In the tuxedo, he was still wearing the, the wetsuit. And I, I pulled him aside and I said, you know, Timothy, what are you doing? You're at a wedding in this scene. You, you can't be wearing that. And he just turned to me and he said, I am the frogman. And my amphibious overlord wants me to do his bidding. Unsettling. And it speaks to a reoccurring problem early on in filming The Living Daylights. Much like a child with his favorite pair of jam jams, Timothy Dalton would not, for any reason, take off the frog suit be it a love scene with his co-star, or in the showers, before and after makeup. The frog suit stayed on. Eventually, we had to compromise, right? He said he wanted a smaller tuxedo, and I didn't know that this was in the works, so they were crafting something that was more slim. And then I said, okay, well, what if you're always wearing the frog suit, but instead of over the tuxedo, it's underneath your clothing? And he said, okay. So he put the wetsuit on, and then they got this small tuxedo, and he could barely move in it. There was no room. He was wearing this rubber full-length bodysuit over a tuxedo that was designed to be purposely smaller. At long last, at a wit's end and nearing the edge of a fraying rope, wardrobe, in a brash act of desperation, burned the frog suit. It was an action that many attribute to the final breaking down of the tenuous mental walls between the sane and the insane in Dalton's mind. As he saw the smoldering remains of the adhesive goggles. He said, I will never love like this again, nor will anyone else, and turned grimly away from the scene. I think that marked the point where the wardrobe and makeup stylists were fearing for their lives. And it's interesting because License to Kill is all about James Bond getting his license to kill suspended because he's taken a personal vendetta way too far and he becomes uncontrollable. And this is exactly what happened with Timothy Dalton and the entire makeup and wardrobe department. They'd get to work 
and their clothes would be ripped open, makeup would be strewn all about. They'd say, Timothy, what happened? And he'd just say, nothing, the frogman and I. Nothing, the frogman and I. Frightening words, and I think we can head towards the light at the end of this tunnel, and the light at the end of his stint as Bond, with a quote. We often like to take these quotes firsthand. This comes from Head of Wardrobe, Wayne F. Tomlinson, who describes, in his own words, an encounter on one of the final days of shooting for License to Kill. And I read, We walked into wardrobe and makeup, and it was as if the wind had stopped. It was strangely quiet. Me and the PAs started gathering things we needed to get Timothy ready, and we noticed a coat rack that wasn't usually there. After a few moments of staring at it, it moved, revealing itself to be a nude Dalton who had used stage makeup to disguise himself as a coat rack. Fearing for our lives, we asked how long he'd been there, and he said, I have always been here, and simply walked away. That day, we all walked off set never to return to any Eon production. It's really unfortunate, Rupert, because Wayne, several years later, was suffocated and killed with a snorkel mask. And police officers never had any leads on who did it. And the case still remains open to today. Tragedy and life imitating art, which, as you mentioned, George, imitated life. It was uncanny how the plot line of A License to Kill was mirrored in Dalton's own life. And there was no happy ending for Dalton like there was for James Bond in the film. Instead of reinstated with a third film, the production company cut him loose. They had to. He had become unpredictable dangerous, and, as some might say, a rogue agent. George, thank you for bearing your soul and talking about this difficult time in your life, a mentee that went mental. Could you offer us any last thoughts on Timothy Dalton's performance? Well, Rupert, when a pendulum swings, it's going to swing back. And that's exactly what happened in reaction to the goofy shit that Roger Moore brought to Bond. And it reminds me, actually, of a relationship that I had. Are you interested in this, or do you want me to tell the story? Yes, George, of course. Please continue. Okay, good. So I was very, um, as you know, Rupert, sexually experienced from a young age. I'm sure I've talked to you about this multiple times. but At length, yes. But with experience, you know, comes boredom and comes desire for new challenges. So at this prestigious Hollywood elite party that I would frequent, I met the woman who played the original Morticia Adams from the Adams Family. Uh, her name was Carolyn Jones. And immediately, Rupert, I was like Roger Moore trying to do a good performance out of my comfort zone. And as it turns out, they chose Carolyn for the part of Morticia for more than just her uh, acting prowess, should we say. Because she was clinically insane. And when it came to the bedroom, she was more than just a freak in the sheets. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Please do. She actually slept on a bed of nails, like in the actual show. And she wouldn't even let me have a safe word because she said it would be pointless since I was already knowingly putting myself in danger walking into a bedroom. So after a short time, Rupert, I had to break things off, really for my physical well-being and for my safety. I'd been to the emergency room eight times in two weeks for penis-related trauma. In the end, I went back to what I was comfortable with, something just, you know, completely boring. Beautiful, exotic supermodels with amazing physiques. But as they say, hindsight is 2020. Mine may even be 30-30 or 40-40. I don't know. I haven't been tested. But I think, Rupert, if it were now, 
I'd be down to get nailed, if you know what I mean. But when something is scary or a little different, I think we're often too quick to revert back to what we know. And in the case of Timothy, the world simply wasn't ready. And unfortunately, we had to endure a more blandness to show us what seems very obvious now. The same thing actually happened to me in RC Cola. I tasted it once. I didn't drink it for 10 years, and now I can't put the stuff down. And obviously, that's not the most interesting detail to end that story on, but I think you get what I'm getting at. Curiously, and in, it must be said, a roundabout way, I do get what you're getting at. Eventually, we had to return to a more predictable, a more accessible, and a more friendly version of James Bond, which is where, of course, Piers Brosnan enters the equation. Our next Bond, and the next topic of building a better Bond. We'll talk about him next week. And until then, thank you, listeners, for joining us in conjunction with the PBS and the BBC. I am Rupert Carmichael. I'm George Lazenby. Good night. <laughs>